In the Perspectrum podcast, we discuss controversial topics. Outside of this context, Michael and I are both working professionals. While doing the show, we are not acting as agents or representatives of our respective institutions. And none of the views that we express reflect the outlooks of our employers. So don't come to my office and throw toilet paper at me. And I don't have an office, but don't come to my queue. Welcome to the Perspectrum. I'm Nathan Seelove. And I'm Michael Bloom. And we are going to be talking about several things today, although two of them are kind of going to focus on the same subject, which you'll never believe it. We're talking more about COVID-19. Yay. By the <laughs> way, like, shout out to our listeners. One, thanks for continuing to listen as we've been doing a bunch of COVID-19 coverage. I'm sure it's exhausting for some of you. It's exhausting for us, but you know, it's obviously super important stuff. If you have other things that you would like to have us talk about, that you'd like to, us to research and you'd like to hear us do an episode on, we'd love to hear from you because yeah. it's, you know, it's hard to cut through the COVID-19 stuff and it's super important, but, you know, we don't want to lose the forest for the trees. So, yeah. yeah, if you have things that you want us to talk about, we'd love to hear from you. And let's not forget that there are other issues that people are facing that aren't just as a result of COVID-19. I mean, a lot of people were uninsured and facing turmoil on in their health for a lot of things that were not COVID-19 before it happened, yeah. which is one of the reasons why we spend so much time talking about things like Medicare for all. So there are plenty of other issues that if you want us to talk about, you want to hear our opinions on, um, feel free to reach out to us. We have chosen several of our segments in the past based on what our audiences have recommended. Mm -hmm. Certainly. So with that said, let's talk some more about COVID-19. <laughs> yeah. So today we're going to do an update on COVID-19, and then we are going to have a little bit more of a philosophical discussion on the threshold of government intervention and a lot of the themes that we will be discussing are very much present in our current pandemic. And then we're going to end the podcast kind of looking to the future a little bit and talking about the Senate races that are going to be happening this November and which ones we believe are competitive and which ones are a foregone conclusion and discuss ways that you can potentially make a difference. Awesome. Well, with that, let's get started. Um, so as of 4 p.m. today, on April 6th, 2020, there were about 1.3 million cases of uh, the novel coronavirus, COVID-19, in the world with about 700 or with about uh, 74,000 deaths, which if you do that math, if you just do that simple division, that's around a 6% death rate of confirmed cases. So way higher than, you know, the yeah. initial death rates that we were expecting. Um, yeah. In the U.S., we have about 360,000 cases with about 11,000 deaths. So yeah. that's a death rate a little bit more in line with what we were expecting at about 2.8%. Um, yeah. I'm I'm actually already starting to see people in my Facebook feed talking about their relatives getting sick. And uh, one person on my Facebook feed actually uh, lost their grandparent to this virus already. So yeah. it's already starting to we're already starting to notice it. And remember mm -hmm. when we were talking about exponential growth, once you get to the point where you're starting to notice it, if you haven't done anything, it's already too late. Yeah. Luckily, a lot of people have been doing things. So hopefully we can flatten the curve. Hopefully we can make this uh, better than it could have been. But as it stands, it's definitely worse than 
it should have been. Yeah. Yeah. And also a call back to our earlier episodes when we were first covering coronavirus, we said like with the death rate of around two, you know, one and a half to three percent, which was like the range we had when we were first talking about this, um, you would have people, you would know people that died um, and you would certainly know people with with like close connections that died from this disease. And we're already seeing that getting to be the case. And all the experts indicate that we are nowhere near the peak of this thing yet. Um, so there will only be more of that to come. But we're going to try to talk about a few, just a few areas of progress um, we have made because the reality is that while this is a formidable foe, the scientific community, the international community of intellectuals and health professionals has come together to fight this thing in really, really dramatic ways. Um, a, a number of people on, of uh, you know, experts and scientists on the front line have said that they've just been amazed by the level of coordination and cooperation across institutions internationally, which is a great sign, and that's good for all of us. And one of the areas where we're seeing that is in the pursuit of a vaccine. So at this point, in the U.S., we have a, around 35 companies and institutions that are currently working on creating a vaccine, and four of those um, have actually started animal testing with one company, Moderna, saying that it's about to begin human trials for a vaccine. So, you know, we're still, you know, along the same timeline that we've talked about before, a year to 18 months out from a likely vaccine, but but that's in comparison to multiple years that you would normally see for the development of a vaccine. So we've like we've just made a lot of progress really fast. Um, and so like that's one area where we could be really hopeful. And, and so far, like so far, the long term solution to this looks like it's some kind of treatment or vaccine um, or at least like really extensive testing. And so, like, getting on the track to a vaccine is super critical. You know, I found one thing kind of interesting during this entire pandemic. I have not been hearing much from anti-vaxxers. Hmm. Have you noticed that? Yeah, I have. <laughs> I, I, I've noticed that you tend to hear more about anti-vax ideology when they're talking about diseases that they don't know anyone who's been infected with. Yeah. <laughs> like if you're talking about polio, they just don't seem to care too much about it. <laughs> but yeah. it's like, uh, well, that's why we have the vaccine. So we don't have to think about it every day. <laughs> yeah. No, it's okay. We'll risk autism for, to prevent COVID-19, but not the measles. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> worth it. Worth it. We don't want to. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. No kidding. Um, which which is like you know it 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 indicates that you know the anti-vax ideology is not to say that these things don't work right like like it is f fully in recognition of the fact that it's an effective treatment that they say we shouldn't vaccinate our kids and we should leave them to die um anyway a little bit off topic <laughs> but uh um an important an, an important thing to be aware of like right so in general this we live in a very strange time right now and we've tried to point out on our show the ways that this strange experience 
and the weird state of things highlight some inconsistencies in our everyday life that we can we can learn about. So you know that's why we talked about um, social safety net programs and you know anti-vaxxers are a good example as well. But just to wrap up the discussion of vaccines, so like even when we get to the place which you know fingers crossed we get get there where we have a vaccine um, developed and ready to be produced, um, a huge barrier is actually developing production capacity for that vaccine because once it's once it's ready we're going to need in tremendously high numbers and so that's something that we should be getting ready for now now as listeners i don't know how much you can do about this i uh you know maybe you can call your senator or something but but we should be expecting our officials and leaders to like be putting away resources and and setting aside money in order to help um, support, uh, you know, capacity um, once a vac- vaccine is developed. And that includes developing supply lines um, and developing infrastructure to get it to the most vulnerable. Yeah. And also not just making sure that there's enough of it, but making sure that money is not a barrier. Mm-hmm. Because if they develop this vaccine, it needs to be free. Yeah. I mean, it needs to be free at the point of service because this is a pandemic that is affecting everybody yeah and if not everybody who can get the virus is given access both um geographically and monetarily then it's just going to end up mutating the virus again or putting people that cannot get the vaccine due to health reasons at risk so that's another thing that we need to make sure that we push for once there does become a vaccine available yeah that's exactly right and we need to push for that level of supply in all of our healthcare system, but definitely yeah. in this regard yeah. because it benefits <laughs> yeah. everybody. And w- yeah, while you're at it, um, ask for Medicare for all too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just type that on at the end. Yeah. <laughs> um, and another like positive development on the testing side of things is, according to the, to NBC, at this point the U.S. has tested over a million people for the virus, which is really great. Like it is, we were saying from early on that testing was one of the primary requirements and levers um, for us to get ahead of this thing. And testing a million people is a great milestone. It is not enough. Yeah. And there is still a great shortage of tests. And there was actually this uh, phone call that Donald Trump was on Mm. with a bunch of governors in which uh, Governor Steve Bullock from Montana was actually talking about the shortage of tests, and then Donald Trump is like, "Oh, shortage of tests? I, I didn't know any. I didn't know of anything about that. I didn't hear anything about tests." It's like, seriously, man, have have you not been paying attention? It's so hard no, to hear he's... with my head buried under the sand. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, oh, and he, I think it must be even harder for him to hear while he is. Uh, screaming at the top of his lungs how he has the most followers of anybody on Facebook. Which, <laughs> fun fact, uh, Barack Obama actually has more likes than he does on Facebook. Oh, wow. Not at all relevant to the conversation, but I'm sure yeah. it pisses him off. So, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, anything that does that. <laughs> um, but yeah, so like a million people is like a gr- good milestone, but we're still testing way behind South Korea um and italy so as an example so you know south korea we're testing at about a third of the rate of south korea and about half the rate of italy um on a a per capita Mm -hmm. basis so we're very far behind but at least we're ramping up um our testing and this is a great development the fda has just authorized 
the use of an antibody test, which is where um, it's a blood test that is administered and it picks up on um, antibodies that protect you against um, the virus. So you would pretty much only have those if you had already had the virus. But the really important thing there is is kind of twofold. One, it'll help us understand the extent to which this thing can be carried by asymptomatic cases. So that's where you are sick with the disease, but you have no symptoms. And so you go about your everyday life um, infecting people at the same rate that anyone else with the disease would. Um, and according to the CDC's recent estimate, it's it's possible that around 25% of coronavirus cases um, actually present with no symptoms. Now, it's really hard to measure that number for obvious reasons. Um, without symptoms, you don't know who to test. <laughs> but um, but like that is that is something that can make this disease, you know, way more dangerous. And so knowing that can help us tailor a response. And two, the second most the second important reason for an antibody uh, test is that it can help people know when it's safe for them to re-enter society um, and go about their lives. So you know, at this point, because we're testing so few people with the disease, when people recover, they're still told to stay at home and not participate and not go to work and because we're not sure that they had it so we're not sure that they have the antibodies and every recovery is not necessarily a win um, so if we can test for antibodies on a large scale we can allow people to get back to participating in society at, at a much greater rate so there are some things um, that are positive at this point we are making progress it can be asymptomatic yeah. See, that's that's news, or at least that's news to Georgia Governor Brian Kemp. Did you hear about that? No. What, what did he do? So the governor of Georgia, Brian Kemp, who some of you might recognize that name from the guy who uh, was Secretary of State overseeing his own election, um, in <laughs> oh, which he yeah. uh, in which he threw out a, a bunch of voter registrations, um, he apparently held off on closing down the state of Georgia because he hadn't yet heard that people could be asymptomatic. Mm. It's like, we've known that for months. Yeah. Like, or, or at least it's been a or, hypothesis for months. We know it's been a risk for literally we know it's since been the a beginning risk, of the disease. Like, since the beginning of this, and he just found this out now. This is the governor yeah. of Georgia. <laughs> so if you live in Georgia, my sympathy goes out to you. Yeah, stay inside. <laughs> don't listen to your governor he's an idiot yeah and uh yeah and with that that's the end of the good news and now <laughs> on to the bad news <laughs> yeah um yeah so uh according to most recent estimates even even after all the social distancing and activities that the u.s has been taking to protect ourselves and our, our fellow um citizens we're potentially looking at an estimated um, death count of between 100 and 240,000 people um, from this disease. Now, compared to the, the number that we referenced in the study uh, conducted um, by a university, which estimated the number of people that would die if we didn't uh, put in place any mitigation efforts, and that ranged between 1.1 million people and 2.2 million people, um, that's obviously significantly lower, and that's largely as a result of our social distancing. So I guess the bright spot is that 
all of the hard work that you and others have been putting in to distance yourself from others, work at home, stay inside, it's having a positive effect, at least according to the models. But still, 100, 100 to 240,000 people is way too many. Well, not according to Donald Trump. <laughs> so Donald Trump was doing a press conference in which he said he decided to move the goalpost. Previously, he has called the coronavirus a hoax and uh, it's just as bad as the flu and that, you know, very soon there's going to be zero people that uh, are in the United States with it. So he's now moved the goalpost saying during a uh, during a press briefing, quote, so you're talking about 2.2 million deaths, 2.2 million people from this. And so if we hold that down, as we're saying to 100,000, it's a horrible number, maybe even less, but to 100,000, so we have between 100 and 200,000, and we all together have done a very good job. <laughs> Can I just commend you? Um, from the very beginning of this podcast, you've done such a good job quoting Donald Trump. It is so hard to yeah. read those quotes. It's just like a bunch of random words. I am, yeah. I don't know how you do it. I am so bad at it. See, the <laughs> trick is to just read it as if it makes sense and then let the nonsense kind of speak for itself. Mm -hmm. that's, that's, um, that's a good but yeah, tip. Yeah, and it sucks because I'm, I'm also dyslexic. So <laughs> he does not make it easy. Is he not making sense or is my brain not making any sense? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's uh, well, um, well done. Well done. So, so yeah, he, there are, have been some projections that the deaths could range in the millions. And basically what he is saying, and by the way, the millions projections are the, if we do nothing mm -hmm. to exactly. be clear, the hundred thousand to 200,000, those aren't the if we do all we can numbers. Those are the if we do something but not enough numbers. Yeah. And the fact that he is considering that up to 200,000 people, the fact that he's considering that a good job is just unthinkable. I mean, that just demonstrates a complete lack of empathy and respect and regard for human life. He is still not willing to take responsibility for the fact that he has made mistakes. Mm -hmm. And look, I would like to be clear about one thing from the very beginning of this. I have been rooting for Donald Trump to completely nail this yeah. because we are in a situation in which Trump is the pilot of our airplane and if he crashes, we all go down with it. Yeah. And I don't want him to crash. I do not want that. I don't want to get sick. I don't want millions of people to die. But the fact of the matter is, through his own incompetence, he has made the situation worse. And pointing that out is not the same as rooting for him to fail. Mm -hmm. It's acknowledging the reality that he is failing. Exactly. I'm just happy... So. To your point, like, I'm happy he's finally getting it through his thick skull that this is not just going to go away on its own and that, that like, this could have, you know, really bad consequences. Like, in the, in the same press conference, um, he said, um, he acknowledged that this could actually be hard. Like, he said, I want every American to be prepared for the hard days that lie ahead. We're going through a very tough few weeks. Yeah. But then later, he just tried to cover his butt again, to your point, Nathan, and he said, what would have happened if we did nothing? 
because there was a group out there that said, let's just ride it out. A group. That's you. That was you. You said that. <laughs> you said <laughs> Yeah, like, there was a group out there. Yeah. It was you. <laughs> it's just, it's like, it's so... Uh, and and the the metaphor of him as like the pilot of the airplane is truly, oh, absolutely terrible. It's like ne- Leslie Nielsen. It has Nielsen. never been more relevant than it is right now. Yeah, like it's look. like a hundred to two hundred thousand deaths. You can't be serious. He's like, I am serious, and don't call me Shirley. <laughs> <laughs> Did you even say Shirley? No. <laughs> he would probably. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sh- I'm Shirley. <laughs> Shirley's a very nice girl. <laughs> I'd probably be dating her. <laughs> oh God! Oh God! <laughs> um, look, if Donald Trump tomorrow came out with this master plan that somehow made it so that nobody else died from this disease, or or even that we were able to keep that number significantly lower than those projections. If he came up with this master plan, he listens to experts and he based this plan on what experts were telling him and it was able to keep the death rate significantly below projections. I would come onto this podcast and I would sing his praises. Mm-hmm. And you know, I don't care if that gets him reelected. I don't care if that makes his approval rating go up. I don't care about any of that. I want him to succeed. I want him to succeed in fighting this virus. I want his administration to do a good job, but it's not doing a good job right now. Yeah. Because let's be clear. It didn't have to be this bad. Like it didn't have to be hundreds of thousands of people expected to die hospitals with very little, um, with like shortages on essential um, products. It didn't have to be a total shutdown of our economy, and we know that because it hasn't been that like that in other countries. Um, so, for example, like like a number of other countries have had much better responses, and they all tend to have a few things in common. So, so one is aggressive practices to identify cases and potential contacts of those cases to to map the spread of the disease which goes hand in hand with the second thing which is like highly coordinated tracking of cases now this is all predicated on testing because you can't know about people with the disease if you're not testing for it and then it's also paired with support for sick people so that they can effectively do their part to protect themselves and others and this combination of things has, has, you know, extremely benefited certain nations. Like Taiwan has had a really effective response um, and been able to limit the spread of their cases. So has South Korea. And they've largely done that through um, these like interesting technological tools, um, using apps to quickly track um, the spread of the disease. But the reality is that like, you know, maybe as far behind as we are, it's not feasible to develop a bunch of new tools and tracking and apps. Now it should have be it should have been because we should have been taking this on a few months ago when it started, when the the WHO first um, drew attention to it back in the end of December. But maybe, but you know, maybe we need to do it the old-fashioned way. Even that's working if we're putting the focus on it. So like Iceland, they've got police doing like literal detective work, tracking down. Um, cases and like finding people that they're connected to and going and tracking those people down. And they've been able to like, so in, in Iceland, because of that, those efforts, 50% of the diagnosed cases 
are diagnosed when they're already in quarantine. So they're able to take people, say, you're, gonna, you're likely going to get this disease, segregate them, and, and then identify that they have the disease. So that means that they're, they're almost definitely you know, limiting the spread of the disease in their country. Um, so it's like the upside to having been prepared is huge. Because it's not like we had no idea that something like this could be coming along. Um, for example, the Pentagon, recently reported by um, The Nation, um, is that the Pentagon, actually back in 2017, put together a report detailing the possibility of a novel coronavirus pandemic. So novel being like new to humans and then uh, coronavirus or some other kind of respiratory illness as like one of the most likely and most significant um, security health risks of the United States. They saw this back in 2017 and put together um, like projections for what that would look like. And one of the things they pointed out is that we would almost definitely have shortages of masks and beds and ventilators. And we've done nothing to prepare. You know, like we allowed the contract to maintain our national strategic stockpile of ventilators to lapse. So a number of the ventilators coming out of the strategic stockpile are having to be repaired and aren't working. And also, let's not forget. So that report came out uh, was from 2017. In 2018, that's when the Trump administration dismantled the pandemic response team. Mm -hmm. And during the time of all these cuts, Donald Trump was justifying them based on, oh, well, a lot of these people in the government are just sitting around not doing anything. Basically, uh, what that translates to in this situation is we were not in the middle of a pandemic. Yeah. <laughs> Therefore, why should we be paying a pandemic response team? Um, why should we be wasting money on that? Well, because they're a pandemic response team. Mm -hmm. They're supposed to be there in case it happens. And maybe if they had had a plan for something like this, and it turns out for there were warnings about a virus basically exactly like this mm -hmm. three years ago, maybe we could have been better prepared for this. Maybe yeah. we could have had a better stockpile. Maybe we could have had better plans in place to keep people from uh, contracting the virus uh, socially. Yeah, because being able to react swiftly is a really important part of reacting effectively. You know, you can look at the models of exponential growth. You look at how quickly this gets out of hand because, you know, if you can catch it at the first case or the fifth case or or something like that, like you can you can cut down the number of of people that have had contact with an infected person exponentially but as soon as it gets to like a 20 or 30th case you just can't track down all the potential connections you know it only takes the the models of like social networking indicate that there's only six degrees of separation between any two people in the united states so if you're if you can trace um between you and anyone else six individuals that exist between you two which means that you know by the time you've got 20 or 30 or 40 people with this case, it, there's just too many potential like potential future cases to get ahead of. So being fast and being prepared is key. And experts in emergency response know that. 
You know, I'm like, pretty sure that that's referred to as the Kevin Bacon score. Sure, because we all. I think that's like the '90s. We got to update it for like the the Justin Bieber score or. Oh no, not Justin Bieber. <laughs> no, no, you need someone better, someone we'd actually want to meet. <laughs> um, um, the Chris Evans score. I'd like to meet him. Yeah, that sounds good. Yeah, yeah. Um, but the thing is, like, <laughs> it's uh, you know, it's not like we don't know something like this is going to come. It's like it's like getting surprised every year during hurricane season. It's like, no, no, there's going to be a hurricane. It's going to happen. We like need to have budget and we need to be prepared and we need to have, you know, people in place. We're going to have some kind of outbreak of a new disease every few years. It may but, not be but, something of this scale, but like having being prepared and having the structures and procedures in place make all the difference. But Michael, what if it hits an island surrounded by water? Oof. Are you talking about a hurricane or a disease? Because if it's a disease, I mean either one. <laughs> I mean, if any if any disaster hits an island, because islands are surrounded by water, mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. like we would just be screwed. Yeah, that's a good. There's point. nothing you can do there. There's nothing you can do. There's no way. We don't have boats. Oh crap! <laughs> that's what we need: boats. <laughs> uh. Yeah, so that you or, or or just an airplane, so you can use like a t-shirt gun to to shoot out paper towels to everybody. There you go. There you go. <laughs> and let you know, let's be clear: there were boats before there were wheels. So <laughs> and 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 a wheel a wheel is older than a wall. Did you know that? Oh, I didn't know that. The wheel, yeah, the wheel is older than the wall. Wow, I, I had no idea. So we should have By been the building way, bridges, not <laughs> walls. By the way, everything that we just referenced are actual Trump quotations. <laughs> <laughs> so with all that being said, we know we could have done a better job. And as a result of the negligence of our government, um, a lot of people would will die that wouldn't have had to. And a lot of economic value will be destroyed that could have been preserved um, and we should remember that so now it's time for one of our more lighthearted segments tips for good so nathan what's our tip for good this week well so as you know we like to come to you every week with some advice or ideas or tips for how you can make the world a better place so our tip this week is to show appreciation for medical workers and essential workers during this time period. Oh, yeah. And it's important to also include essential workers into that mix. Now, there have been a lot of very wonderful messages being put out to people that are working in the medical profession right now. And we need to send out huge thank yous to those who are putting their lives on the line to fight against this pandemic. So we here at the Perspectrum would like to send out a huge shout out to anybody who might be listening who happens to be a doctor or a nurse or some kind of medical worker, Mm -hmm. while also acknowledging the fact that your job should not be as dangerous as it is right now. So we don't want to make it seem like the heroic acts that these medical workers are doing disregards the fact that it shouldn't be as risky for them to be working in the first place. But we do want to make sure to show our appreciation. But aside from that, we want to make sure that we're showing appreciation 
for the people that are working in essential industries, mm -hmm. your grocery stores, your restaurants. Honestly, like package delivery, like your mail, your UPS, um, the people that, everybody that works in the economy and enables us all to take the actions that we should be taking, right? Like if you couldn't have, if you couldn't go out and get your groceries, you would have to, you know, go find food somewhere else if you could eat it all. And if you couldn't have like your supplies mailed to you, then you would have to go out and expose yourself and others and potentially spread the pandemic. Like by, by focusing the responsibility for, you know, being out in the world on basically specialists at this point, like, um, yeah it is enabling all of us to take the actions that we should be taking, which means that one, you should be taking those actions, right? Like they're out there risking themselves so that you can be safe. And two, you sh we should be appreciating those people. We should be compensating those people because they are out there doing, um, uh, playing an essential role in our pandemic response and in, you know, supporting us all. So thank those people. If you have a food delivery person or a grocery delivery person or a, a FedEx driver, tip them, thank them, you know, be the monetary and psychological support that, that they don't get a lot of times when they should. And let's not forget that there are a lot of people that are considered essential workers during this pandemic who are minimum wage workers who are often mocked when they simply ask for a living wage. Mm -hmm. So the next time you're complaining about a fast food worker wanting more than $7.25 an hour for their wages, think about who was essential during this time period. And that's Tips for Good. And for our next segment, we're going to take a little bit of a more um, philosophical approach to questions around um, the threshold for government intervention and like the expansion of government powers. Because as a result of the coronavirus crisis, um, states and federal government have been taking actions that we would normally not, you know, accept as being appropriate. You know, for example, uh, closing restaurants that don't have any type of like health code violation or something like that, or preventing retailers from opening or preventing us from leaving our homes. So under normal peacetime, you know, we would think of all of those things as government overreach. Um, but there's something very different about certain special times in a government um, life cycle, such as pandemic response, such as national defense. Um, and so we wanted to talk just a little bit about when um, we reach the level of that expanded government action and why that's probably justified um, and when it shouldn't be. And part of this is a response to what a lot of people we've been seeing have been saying during this time. Uh, I have a lot of libertarian friends that are really pissed off about all of the uh, government regulation that has been happening during this time period. Mm -hmm. And to an extent, I empathize because nobody likes being told what to do. And, you know, 
that's not exactly a great basis for political philosophy, but no. <laughs> <laughs> from the perspective of liberty as a good in and of itself, or as like the primary good in, in the case of a number of libertarian philosophies, um, you know, you can see why they might be made uncomfortable by a government that is taking actions that, you know, none of us under ordinary circumstances would accept. Yeah. Yeah. But I would also like to make the argument that under the classic libertarian definition of when you are responsible, ergo, when the government needs to take some type of action, that threshold comes when your actions put another person at risk. So when we're talking about the government creating laws or shutting down states or anything like that, the reason why they're doing that is because when you are out in public, every time you go out in public, you are putting other people at risk. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, so... To put it in like more rights-based language, because that's often the language that you hear from libertarians um, or you know classical liberals, your right to freedom of action ends where you are infringing on the rights of others. And so, like if you were to take if you were to take a very strict libertarian perspective, that would be the only laws that exist. But even under that very strict perspective. Um, you know, your right to go out and, you know, behave as if, as if like the world around you is just like normal, um, is certainly limited by the fact that, you know, if you are out there spreading a disease, um, wantonly and without regard for the risk to other people, you are infringing on their rights. You know, you could take like the typhoid Mary case who was, a literal person who existed during like the typhoid epidemic in New York. And she was a, a maid in New York and she just refused to stop working. And they kept like, they kept, they like gave her money to support her and they kept like trying to get her to stop working. And eventually they had to force her into quarantine to keep her from just spreading around this disease to everyone, because it is absolutely a violation of the rights of people around you. If you are out there spreading a disease, um, but a more reasonable, um, approach or, or, you know, maybe one that's a little bit more accepted in the mainstream is something along the lines of like a utilitarian approach, which is often the lens that we think of the government occupying. And that's basically, so like, so John Stuart Mill um, argued that, you know, while utility is the ultimate good, right? Like while individual, maximizing um, individual and cumulative happiness and well-being is the ultimate good, the way to get to that point, the way to achieve it, is by enabling people to live with as much liberty as possible. And and the argument goes something like this. If you um, are an individual who experiences happiness, pleasure, pain, you are the ultimate authority on your own experiences. And in the interest of maximizing your individual um, pleasure and um, happiness... Um, you will go about conducting your life in a certain set of ways. And because individuals all, are all different, and it's impossible to know exactly the mind of all the individuals, um, the, um, it would be impractical and impossible for the government to actually maximize ha happiness and well-being for everyone by putting in place 
prescriptive laws, right? Like, you know, if the government put in place a law that said no one's allowed to eat sugar, but I get a tremendous amount of pleasure from eating sugar, and it makes me very, very, very happy, um, it would be a net negative um, for me to be restricted from eating sugar. And so for all the people that are like me in, in the country, there would be a net negative. And so that basically sets it up such that, you know, liberty ends up being a device that services overall happiness. But again, in this case, the happiness and well-being of people not getting sick and becoming miserable and dying and our hospitals not being overrun and our society and economy not collapsing certainly overrides our individual interests in our personal liberty to service our own happiness um, because on a whole as a society like avoiding hundreds of thousands if not millions of deaths avoiding economic and social collapse is a much you know more significant good and positive thing than me being able to go for a stroll or get a beer at a bar or eat out at a restaurant. And another point that I would make to that is this is also a good embodiment of the social contract. Mm -hmm. So the social contract is this idea that regardless of the extent of government involvement in any situation, when a society agrees to have a government, they are agreeing to forsake certain freedoms. Now, ideally, those freedoms should be things like the freedom to kill another person, because those are freedoms that nobody should have. But you are still giving up a certain amount of power to that governing entity. So the idea is, if you are giving up that power, you need something in return. And that something, many social democrats would argue, should go beyond just security. But even if we are just arguing that it should just involve security, that still factors in to this entire pandemic. Mm -hmm. Now, going back to the social democratic argument, some would even argue that it should go even further than that, even further than just security, even further than just keeping people from harming other people through the disease. It should also go to the extent of giving people a safety net, giving people social services, giving people a universal basic income, which interestingly enough, the Overton window has shifted to the point where the argument is not, is it ridiculous to give checks to everybody in America? It's how much should that be? Because the, re the stimulus package even the Republican stimulus package that was originally voted down did involve checks to Americans. So that additional security blanket, I would argue, from a social democratic perspective, is the government fulfilling their end of the social contract. Yeah, I'd say that's definitely true. Now, now it's important to recognize that these are special circumstances. Because what you wouldn't want, right, is to, and this is what everybody's, you know, ostensibly afraid of, is that once you provide a special grant of power to the government, they never give it back. They never give up the special powers to limit things. Now, that is certainly something we need to be mindful of and aware of. And there is certainly precedence for that. 
for example, there's the Patriot Act. The Patriot Act was created as a direct response to 9-11 when everybody was terrified of another terrorist attack in the United States. And it's absolutely the responsibility of the United States government to protect the citizens from another attack from a foreign actor. However, the Patriot Act took away way too many freedoms. It completely ripped apart the Constitution. Basically, in the Patriot Act, people can be detained indefinitely without due process if they are suspected terrorists, which the point of due process is to figure out if a person committed the crime that they're being charged for. So if you completely forsake that, you have the potential of incarcerating innocents, which happened to yeah. a major degree in Guantanamo Bay. Mm -hmm. So, and the Patriot Act is still in existence. Yeah. And this was a bipartisan effort to completely destroy civil liberties. And it was in response to a crisis. So I'm not saying that there isn't precedence for concern over civil liberties being taken um, in response to a crisis. However, to the extent that the civil liberties that are being restricted at this point directly impact how you interact with other people and how you might spread the disease to other people— mm -hmm. In this case, it does fit that threshold of government involvement. Yeah, I'd say that's true. And, and you know, we don't need to necessarily, necessarily define exactly where that threshold is in order to figure out that it almost definitely applies in this case. Um, and to your point, Nathan, there is precedence for these things, right? Like, like emergencies and especially wartime has been used as a justification for some of the most heinous acts in American history in, in Japanese internment. And that's the big one that comes to mind yeah. for me. And, and so like as individuals and as, and you know, our institutions must keep a close eye on the actions that are being taken. Um, and there are a few things that we have to like focus on and guarantee. And, and one is that the special grants of power end, right? So, um, I don't think we have to worry about that necessarily in this case, because who's going to want to just confine people to their homes and shut down all the restaurants and all the retailers? Like, no one is an interest in doing that. No one benefits from that. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Two, we have to make sure that they're not co-opted for other purposes, right? So, you know, we we everything should be narrowly tailored to focus on preventing the spread of this disease, limiting the overall downsides and harms. And for example, it would be a really bad thing if Trump never allowed General Motors and Ford to stop manufacturing ventilators and continue to manufacture cars. Like that would be an unacceptable and strange result of, of these actions. And, and we should justifiably move against those. And three, we want to, we have to make sure that it doesn't unjustly focus on a specific, specific subset of people. Um, so like Japanese internment is a clear case that violates a number of these things. But you know, if, if the government were to wrongly and ridiculously try to quarantine exclusively people of Chinese American, uh, exclusively Chinese Americans, that would be absolutely crazy and ridiculous and unacceptable and would violate like the civil liberties and the rights, even in, even in an extreme circumstance like a pandemic. So 
Those are the kinds of things we need to watch out for. But most effective, most importantly, we need to make sure that the measures we take are effective, right? Because, you know, if millions of people die and our economy collapses and things get really, really bad, your life is going to be restricted way beyond having to stay inside sometimes. And that's what we want to avoid. And now it's time for one of our favorite segments, Asshat of the Week. So, Nathan, who is our lucky asshat this week? Well, our asshat this week is Irving Baxter, another pastor, which, to be clear, clear, uh, the Perspectrum does not have anything personal against religious figures or professional against them. It's just some of them say really crazy crap. Yeah. (laughs) So, Irving, who, by the way, was on the Jim Baker show, who uh, is a former honorary asshat of the Perspectrum, so the gift that keeps on giving. Yeah. He had a hot take on who is really responsible for the coronavirus. Who, you might ask. It's not the bats? No, it's not the bats. He does not believe it's the bats. Interesting. He does not believe it's the incompetence of an administration. Does he believe it's uh, it's evolution of, of viruses? I, I, I highly doubt that he believes <laughs> that it has anything to do with evolution. Hmm. No, no. He believes the real cause of coronavirus is fornication. Oh, my gosh. I didn't even think he about said, that. Yeah. He said, <laughs> as a guest on the Jim Baker show, quote, There are 7.5 million unmarried couples living together in the United States. That means 15 million are living together unmarried. That's an increase over the last 10 years by 138%. So right now, he's just stating some facts. Like, okay, okay, you know. I mean, I don't know why you're stating those facts, but uh, it must mean something. Sure. So so let's so let's keep going. Next, he says, according to his findings, which, by the way, he uh, doesn't actually cite anything scientific on this next part. And and this show has hosted people that have tried to sell like liquid silver to treat coronavirus. So take it yep, with a grain of salt or another good point. a grain of silver. So he says, quote, only 5% of new brides in America are virgins. That means that 95% have already committed fornication. Wow. So interesting how he's only talking about brides. Like, is it not fornication if it's a guy? So does that mean that guys are home free for fornication or is it, or is it everybody? Don't you know all men go to heaven, Nathan? (laughs) (laughs) Well, obviously not because in the next quotation, he says, quote, God is not mocked. Neither the sexually immoral, nor the idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, Side note, I guess female prostitutes are okay. Yeah. <laughs> nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. No what fun is the kingdom will... of God with no female prostitutes, Nathan? That's why he left us. No, 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 female prostitutes are apparently fine. It's yeah, male prostitutes. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you want to have those in the kingdom for, for all yeah. the, you know, the pious men uh, that get in. Yeah. Apparently, uh, so extortioners. Uh, extortioners will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. So mm. I guess, I guess this guy's screwed then. Yeah, and <laughs> as is you know most of the people in the government currently. So sorry, uh, Republicans. So how does this all relate to COVID nineteen? 
Well, he he gets to that. He says, God may be using this as a wake-up call. This coronavirus may be a privilege because I tell you now, there is a much bigger judgment coming. So so my favorite part, my favorite freaking part of this whole thing is in the bottom of the clip, like through running the whole thing, it's like there's like a call number to like order your version of whatever yeah. they're selling. And it's a $35 pandemic bundle, including Satan's end times plan revealed DVD and a book called Great Influenza. And Seriously, a DVD? Yeah. Dude, get like, Blu-ray. Blue, Blu-ray is obsolete at this point. Get 4K. <laughs> like, for a limited time only, 1995, get your VHS of the end times. <laughs> no, I'll just listen to it on my Walkman. <laughs> your what? Is that a cassette player? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You didn't know that's what they were called? Wow. That's uh what a time. What a time. Okay, millennial. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, that's uh Mr. Urban Baker. He yeah. uh, and I, what's I wonder if the health experts have tried, you know, holy water, blessing people, selling indulgences, you know, the classics to treat coronavirus. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and what's weird is that the people that are mainly dying from the virus are older people which tend to be a little bit more traditionally conservative. Hmm. So shouldn't it be more the younger people who are getting married and committing the sin of fornication that are dying from it if this is a punishment from God? I, I, so I, I think I draw two conclusions. One, our grandparents are way more messed up than we're expecting. <laughs> <laughs> or, or two, um, he's saying that... that those older people are being sacrificed as a message to the young, which, you know, that is a privilege. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, that's kind of messed up, man. I yeah, mean, that, it's, it's that's what you think up. of God. Like if I were God, I would be like, seriously, dude, I am not that much of an asshole. Like stop <laughs> speaking for me. Yeah, seriously. So congratulations <laughs> to Irvin Baxter for being our asshat of, of the week. week. Okay, and for our last segment, we want to lift ourselves out of the time of coronavirus and place ourselves into November 2020 when we'll, we will be doing our best to win the presidency and almost, you know, verging on as important, get a majority of the Senate because the path to getting the agenda that we're looking for passed is not just to take the presidency but to win in Congress as well. And that's what we're trying to figure out now. Yeah. So along those lines, we are going to go through the Senate races that are going to be happening in 2020. Because the Democrats do actually have a possibility of taking control of the Senate. In order for that to happen, let's lay out a few quick facts. So as it stands, the makeup of the Senate is 47 Democrats and 53 Republicans. Well, I guess it would be more accurate to say um, 45 Democrats, two independents who caucus with the Democrats, and then 53 Republicans. And even maybe more accurate to say, like, three Republicans and 50 nutjobs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, basically. So in order for uh, Democrats to gain a majority, they either need to net... 
three seats and win the White House. Because if they won the White House and there was a 50-50 split in the Senate, the tiebreaker would go to the vice president, mm -hmm. who would be a Democrat. And that would effectively give Democrats control of the Senate. Or if they do not take control of the White House, then they need to net four seats. So let's look at the possibility of doing that. First off, let's go ahead and lay out states that are up for re-election but are labeled as safe states. For so have, Republicans? Uh, for Republicans and Democrats. Okay. So um, Alaska is safe for the Republicans. Arkansas is safe for the Republicans. Delaware is safe for the Democrats. Idaho is safe for the Republicans. Illinois is safe for the Democrats. Louisiana is safe for the Republicans. Uh, Massachusetts is safe for the Democrats. Um, Mississippi is safe for the Republicans. Nebraska is safe for the Republicans. New Jersey is safe for the Democrats. Oklahoma is safe for the Republicans. Oregon is safe for the Democrats. Rhode Island is safe for the Democrats. South Carolina is safe for the Republicans. South Dakota is safe for the Republicans. Tennessee is safe for the Republicans. Virginia is safe for the Democrats. West Virginia is labeled as safe for the Republicans, but we're actually going to talk a little bit later about why I kind of disagree with that. And Wyoming is safe for the Republicans. So let's go to the ones that are classified as potentially contested. So those are um, Alabama, which is held by a Democrat, Arizona, which is held by a Republican, Colorado, which is held by a Republican, two Georgia seats, which uh, are both held by Republicans, Iowa, which is held by a Republican, Kansas, which is held by a Republican, Kentucky, which is held by a Republican, Maine, which is held by a Democrat, Michigan, which is held by a Democrat, uh, Minnesota, which is held by a Democrat, Montana, which is held by a Republican, North Carolina, which is held by a Republican, New Hampshire, which is held by a Democrat, New Mexico, which is held by a Democrat, and Texas, which is held by a Republican. So lots of seats are up for re-election. And you might notice that a lot of the seats that are not considered safe are held by Republicans. So let's go ahead and go through some of these uh, contested seats that I think are really not going to be that contested and are most likely going to go one way or the other. So Alabama, I think that's almost certainly going to be a flip for the Republicans. I think Doug Jones is done in Alabama. The fact that he won was a result of a uniquely bad pedophile candidate. Mm -hmm. um, I would argue that both of the Georgia seats are probably safe. Um, although... Kelly Loeffler has recently allegedly committed insider trading during the uh, coronavirus outbreak. So it is possible that the right candidate could make a difference, but I, I, I don't really see Georgia um, changing anytime soon. Mm -hmm. uh, Kansas, I really don't see that flipping um, to, the, to the Democrats. Um, Minnesota, I, I think there's a solid chance that's going to stay in the Democratic category. And Michigan, I think that that's, that's going to stay in the Democratic category. Um, New Hampshire, I think there's a good chance that'll stay in the Democratic category. Um, and New Mexico, the only reason why it's considered contested is because the incumbent is not running. Uh, I think New Mexico is probably pretty safe for the, uh, for the Democrat. Gotcha. So let's go over the ones that might actually be potential pickups. Uh, so I'm going to start with um, ones that are a major long shot 
but still possible. So the first one of those is Texas, which is currently held by John Cornyn. So if you'll remember, in 2018, Ted Cruz won his seat, but only by two points against uh, Beto O'Rourke, which does demonstrate a blue trend in Texas. Mm -hmm. However, in that same race, the Republican governor in another statewide election won pretty decisively. Yeah, and what so we know I, about Beto was that he was a verging on uniquely enticing and powerful candidate. Yeah. Which is Until a of, theme for all of these states. Finding the right candidate is a key to success everywhere that's contested. Absolutely. So if so, with the right candidate, Texas could be a possibility. The Democratic nominee in Texas is currently still up for grabs in a runoff election, so we're we're not really sure about that one. But for now, I would I wouldn't put too many uh, uh, hopes in Texas. Um, next, I want to talk about West Virginia. So West Virginia is currently labeled as a safe state for the Republicans, but I would actually make the argument that if the Democrats nominate Richard Ojeda, who is currently in the running running in the primary mm -hmm. they might have a shot of taking this seat and the reason for that is twofold first off who richard ojeda is what he's been able to do thus far so richard ojeda ran in west virginia three in 2018 against the incumbent carol miller and he lost and he lost by about 13 points so you might hear that and think well that sounds like a decisive victory for Carol Miller. Mm -hmm. So why even bring it up? Well, the reason I'm bringing it up is because that district was carried by Donald Trump by 49 points, meaning Jeez. that Richard Ojeda made up 36 points, which is insane. It was the biggest flip in the entire country. Wow. So and we'd we have to know. replicate that performance and then improve upon it to get that seat. Well, we know that there are enough people in West Virginia that are willing to vote for a Democrat because they currently do have Joe Manchin as one of their senators. Mm. So I would argue that with the right Democrat, we might actually be able to make that competitive. And I think that if Richard Ojeda is able to carry over that support that he had— and add to it, West Virginia could actually be a potential pickup. That would be that would be huge. That would be huge. And and I I, I personally love uh, Richard Ojeda. I think that he is a great candidate. He has um, his anti-corruption rhetoric has been um, wonderful. And he was actually uh, the state senator who was behind the uh, teacher protests in West Virginia. If you remember hearing a little bit about that a few years ago, mm -hmm. he was their biggest advocate in the Senate. And he was, uh, in a lot of ways, he was very much, he was uh, behind that gaining so much traction and attention. So he, he was a very effective senator uh, in West Virginia. Um, and I think he might actually have a chance. Uh, next, let's talk about Kentucky. Mitch McConnell, mm. who... I would define as the most corrupt politician in the United States. And yes, I am counting Donald Trump in that. A lot of the major institutional 
corrupt barriers in Washington are a result of his leadership. Among Republicans, he's extremely effective. He's been an extremely effective leader mm-hmm. because he has been able to block judges but from Democrats. You know, let's not forget that he's the one that stole Garland's seat when Scalia died. He is responsible for that. But he's also super unpopular in his state. And we know that in Kentucky, because they have a Democratic governor right now, that if the Republican is unpopular enough and if the Democrat is popular enough, there are enough people willing to vote for a Democrat in Kentucky to be able, statewide, to elect a Democrat. And Mitch McConnell is currently running against Amy McGrath, who is, uh, who is a veteran and who is very popular in Kentucky. So if we were able to take down the majority leader, that would be huge. And I think we actually have a possibility of doing that. Not just the major, not just a majority leader, the ultimate, the yeah. man who combs over his hair to hide his horns. <laughs> Mitch McConnell out of uh, the government would be just such a win for America. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So next is Iowa, currently held by Joni Ernst. She is a freshman senator. Uh, she was first elected in 2015. Uh, she actually was an asshat of the week a few weeks back. Mm. It's nice and, when people come back around. And um, she ran as being this above-the-fray candidate who would put Iowa first, but it's turned out to j- be just another Trump sycophant. Um, and Iowa, I would argue, is in play looking at what happened in 2018, looking at the House races... They went from three house, so there are three, so there are four house districts in Iowa. They went from three held by Republican, one held by a Democrat, to three held by a Democrat, one held by a Republican. Hmm. And the one Republican is Steve King, which is, you know, the everyone's favorite racist in the house. Yeah. And he didn't win by that much. So uh, now part of that is because of, who he is, but I would say that with the right candidate, Iowa could be in play, mm-hmm. especially considering that she is a freshman. Yeah. And again, that's along a similar theme, like the places where we're closer than we have been historically in, in previous, you know, wins have been often when the Republicans put forth a particularly unpopular candidate or the Democrats have a particularly popular candidate, which emphasizes just the absolute critical nature of having the right people out there spreading the right messages that get people involved and energized. Yeah, absolutely. So next, let's talk about Montana. So Montana is an interesting state because a lot of people would think of it as a solidly red state. Mm -hmm. And in a presidential election, it absolutely is. However... They currently have one Democratic senator and a Democratic governor. And part of that is because when it comes to Montana, people tend to vote more on who the person is in statewide elections rather than the party. Hmm. So right now, the Democratic governor, Steve Bullock, who we referenced earlier in the pod, who was also a uh, presidential candidate for the Democratic Party, he is running for Senate. Hmm. And I would argue that 
a Democrat like him who has won statewide in Montana before might actually have a chance of being competitive against uh, Steve Daines, who is the current senator there. And based on polling, they've been neck and neck. Hmm. So I think we have a potential pickup right there. I would say that I would say it's more likely Republican than not Republican, but it's it's pretty close. It, it's a possibility. Hmm. So let's move into the states that the Democrats have a major possibility for a pickup. So let's start with North Carolina. Polling has looked pretty good in North Carolina. Tom Tillis is currently the senator there, and he is facing a very rough reelection. He is a freshman senator, um, and that is a major potential for a pickup. Uh, North Carolina has been trending blue. Uh, most Democratic presidential candidates have been pulling ahead in North Carolina, and uh, he's been losing to um, he he and he has been behind in most of the polls that I've seen out of North Carolina. So that's a major potential. Next, we have Maine, our favorite Republican who is very concerned about the president's rhetoric, Susan Collins. Maine is a pretty solidly blue state for the most part. And Susan Collins has been able to maintain her seat since 97 by being the moderate, well-mannered Republican who is above the fray. Mm. I mean, and, and she's a little bit more socially liberal than most Republicans. Like she's uh, pro-choice, uh, pro-LGBT. Mm-hmm. And um, that has been getting her elected. However, she has made some pretty rough decisions that uh, people in Maine are not happy with. Under the Trump the presidency, which, the fray comes to you. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, well, one major one was her decision to vote for Brett Kavanaugh. Mm-hmm. She also voted against the removal of Donald Trump. Yeah. And I don't think that's going to do her any favors. I think that there's a very strong possibility that she is dunzo in Maine. Mm. Well, she's been in there since 97. It's probably time. Yeah. So next, let's talk about Arizona. So Arizona is currently held by Martha McSally. And if that name sounds familiar, it's because she ran in 2018 for um uh for senate against kirsten cinema and she lost but the seat that she is currently holding was originally held by the late john mccain Mm. and the republican governor of arizona appointed martha mcsally to be the senator so even though she lost a race to kirsten cinema she still was given this seat Mm -hmm. So she was never elected by Arizona. And as it stands, former Navy captain Mark Kelly is running for that seat and is extremely popular in Arizona. And thus far, most polls have showed him significantly ahead of Martha McSally. So I think Arizona is a very strong possibility for the Democrats. Mm -hmm. Finally, we have Colorado, which... Honestly, I would be extremely surprised if Colorado did not flip to the Democrats. Mm-hmm. It's currently held by Cory Gardner, and nobody likes Cory Gardner. Yeah. Nobody <laughs> likes him. Um, he is a freshman. 
uh, Republican senator. He is in a blue state and he's terrible. Um, so as it stands, there's still a runoff election um, to determine who the uh, nominee is going to end up being. But I think that uh, I think that Colorado is probably going to be a shoe in for the Democrats. So let's let's look at the, the there were four states that I mentioned that I think are most likely going to be um, won by the Democrats. That's Arizona, Colorado, Maine, and North Carolina. And if we assume that Doug Jones is going to lose in Alabama, that puts us up to a 50-50 split in the Senate. Mm-hmm. And if the Democrats take control of the White House, then we have control of the Senate under those circumstances. But remember, those four races are not guarantees. And even if they were, there are a lot of other races that we have the potential to have pickups in. Yeah. So make sure that you're paying attention to these races. If you are in these states, support the candidates. And even if you're in a state where it seems safe, you know, getting out there, supporting your candidates, showing support, convincing people to vote, caucusing for them can make all the difference. Because we all know what it's like to think something's a sure thing and then have the rug pulled out from us on the last yeah. minute. Don't remind me. <laughs> <laughs> Nathan, thanks for like doing all the research to put together a really comprehensive overview of like our path potential path to taking the Senate and control of the government. So the as much work and as difficult as that was, the hard part is still ahead of us. So let's get out there and <laughs> and advocate yeah. and yeah, and do our part. Let's do it. And as we're wrapping up this episode, we want to bring our highlights to you guys as we do every week. So Nathan, what are your highlights this week? My highlight this week is the fact that I got a lot of work done today. A lot of grading that has been in the back of my mind that has been stressing me out. And for the first time, once I finished that, I sat back on my couch and I actually felt good. Like I actually felt for the first time since this pandemic started that things are going to be okay eventually. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't going to be some people that we are going to lose along the way and we must mourn the losses. We must do everything we can to, uh, to prevent as many losses as possible. But today, psychologically, I just felt good and I forgot what that felt like. And it was nice to have that again. Mm. So what about you, Michael? What are, what's your highlight? Well, for me, um, uh, this past weekend, I turned 25, which was super exciting. Um, Happy birthday. Thanks, man. For I the, appreciate it. For, for the fourth time. Yeah. <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> it was definitely a strange time to turn 25. Like, could not have been a weirder <laughs> birthday, but Brie made it super special. My family made it super special. They did, they did like a social distancing um, from across the street. They sang happy birthday and waved signs, <laughs> and it was really nice. Um, and on top of that, I went for a 20 mile bike ride, uh, yesterday, uh, which was lovely. Um, yeah. So just like overall a really nice weekend that made me feel to your point, Nathan, a little bit more normal. And, you know, it was really great to feel like the world wasn't ending. So yeah. 
And with that, thank you so much for listening to The Perspectrum. Tune in next time and uh, can't wait to bring you a next episode.